2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time that I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before, and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Last week I did my impression of a cracked record and some of you probably were thinking, well, that, that was nothing new and it probably wasn't an impression. You're like that all the time. Uh, but we were talking about how all the way through Second Corinthians, uh, Paul has been defending himself, he's been comparing himself with the false apostles and, and then appointing him towards Jesus. Over and over again he's been doing this, defending himself, comparing himself with the false apostles and pointing them towards Jesus. But, but he's always working his way into the centre. His purpose at the centre of it all is to build up the Corinthian church. He wasn't at all interested in tearing them down. He didn't want to ruin people and, and just be hard on them. His intention was to build them up in Christ. Paul had a very great concern for this church. Some in that church, had, including some very prominent leaders, the ones that he refers to as the, the false apostles or the super apostles, he calls them sarcastically, um, they departed from the gospel, and some people had followed after them, departing from the gospel, and worshipping their own image of what they think Jesus should be like. They were worshipping a false image of Jesus, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago in chapter 11. He's using the language of idolatry here. And because they had fallen into idolatry, because they had departed from the true gospel, well, Paul knew that what they were heading for. He knew that the outcome wasn't going to be good for them. They were heading for judgment. 
And he shares this concern in chapter 13, which we're studying today. Right from the very first verse sets the tone for it. He says, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, at first glance, it can all seem a little bit odd to us that, that this rule about witnesses just seems to just pop up there and, and it's, it just comes up out of the blue. What's it about? Well, well Paul didn't make this up. What he was doing is, is he is quoting the legal ethics laid down in the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Let me read it. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offence that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Right? It, it, it was a rule which had at its heart the aim of protecting people against false accusations and against malicious prosecution. There had to be at least two witnesses. Three or more would be better. And so right at the beginning of this chapter, we're getting the sense that, that there's going to be some kind of showdown here. There's, there's going to be some kind of legal confrontation. There's going to be some kind of judgment that's going to be brought to bear when Paul arrives in Corinth. And Paul's already got his witnesses all lined up for it. Who are they? Well, it's himself and the majority of the Corinthian church who had remained loyal to Jesus. Uh, because there'd been people who'd been reporting to Paul about what's been going on. These people are witnesses and Paul himself is a witness. Watch the numbers here. He says, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Right? So he's talking about three separate visits here. The, the first visit that Paul had with Corinth, well, these were good times. This is when he came to Corinth as a missionary. He was the first one to bring the gospel to Corinth, and he preached the gospel, and they believed. Good times. But the second time, it wasn't such a pleasant experience. He warned them. Paul himself, he, he witnessed their appalling behavior. Uh, he witnessed their immorality and the perversion of the gospel that they'd, that they'd taken on. And he saw it, he witnessed it, and he warned them. And now, in this letter, he's warning them a second time. Uh, reports have obviously made it through to Paul that the false teachers and their, their, apostle, their, their followers um, hadn't repented and they were continuing to twist the gospel. And so the second witness is actually a multitude of witnesses, all, all those who remained loyal to Jesus in the Corinthian church who had shared this stuff with Paul. Um, and, and so Paul is giving them now a second warning based on these witnesses. And when Paul then will return for his third visit, he will be a witness to them again. Um, that is, if they don't repent, which of course is the aim. That's what he's wanting them to do, is to repent. But you see, the, the case he is building, 
There needs to be two or three witnesses for action to be taken. And there's nothing in the way now for action to be taken. They've already got two or three witnesses. And not only that, he's already given them two or three warnings. So Paul's intention isn't just to turn up there unannounced and go, ha ha, caught you out, suckers. That's not his intention at all. His intention is to give them every opportunity to repent because he wants to see them restored. But if they don't repent, then he's going to step up and he's going to be strong and he's going to do exactly what needs to be done. And there won't be any weakness. I was quite amazed, really, that Paul seems to look for an opportunity to to preach the gospel wherever he can, and he looks for examples of the gospel wherever he can, and and he finds one right here in the warning that he's giving them. Uh, All right, he, he talks about how when Jesus came, Jesus came first in weakness, in his human frailty. And Jesus was weak, wasn't he? he his, his body was weak. He, he was crucified and he died. But now Paul is saying he lives by the power of God. Uh, likewise, it seems like Paul has been weak in dealing with them. But when he comes on his next visit, he's going to come in the power of Jesus. Right? So it, it's like an example of when Jesus is going to come in, in the power of God in his judgment. And Paul has been warning them. And as I said before, the purpose of his warning is he wants to see them repent. He, he, he'd love to see them restored to Jesus. He'd, he l- would love to see them restored to one another and he would love to see them restored to himself. But when Paul returns, if they haven't repented, well, disciplinary action is going to have to be taken. Now, he doesn't actually tell us here what that disciplinary action is going to be, uh, but it would almost certainly be excommunication. Uh, for those who don't know that big word, excommunication is when somebody is put out of the church, right? You're not welcome in this church anymore. Um, but why would that happen? Well, because there's no place in the church for false teaching, for false teachers, or for a false gospel. And so they need to be pushed out of the church. Um, and I'm pretty confident that that's what Paul had in mind um, for two reasons. Uh, Firstly, it's pretty much the process that Jesus uh, talked about. Um, And I think he's making a connection here with the saying of Jesus, which is recorded in Matthew 18, um, because here it talks about the two or three witnesses again. So Jesus tells us how we should deal with disputes within the church. He says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Well, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, have nothing more to do with him. And, and the second reason that I'm pretty sure that, that he's referring to excommunication is in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, right? This has been going on for a while, all this trouble in Corinth. Um, 
But in the first letter that he wrote to them, he was dealing with a man who had been particularly immoral and unrepentant. And he said, look, it's time to hand this man over to Satan. That's another colloquial way of saying, put him out of the church. And in a loose way, he's using this example of judgment as an example of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. When Jesus walked this earth at his first coming, he appeared in all of his human frailty and weakness. He was in a body that could be abused and could be cursed and could be killed, and he was. But when Jesus returns, he's going to come in all of his power and might. And on the day of the Lord, he will not spare the wicked. And even some, in in fact, there's going to be many who claim to belong to Jesus who will find themselves on the wrong side of Jesus on that day. Matthew chapter 7 tells us, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, isn't that a sobering thought? Many who named Jesus as Lord, and many who did mighty works in his name. Jesus is going to say, get away from me. I don't know you. Now, it seems to me that the Corinthian church, um, although they believed they knew Jesus, had become a church who had lost the fear of God. Uh, Rather than maintaining a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ, they were being very easily misled by the false teachers who who Paul identifies as servants of Satan. You know, sometimes people go, oh, it doesn't, a bit of false teaching in the church, that's not such a bad thing. Just live and let live, you know. But you know what? I don't really want servants of Satan bringing false teaching into the church that I'm a part of. Do you? False teaching in a church is is critically got to be getting rid of. But I believe largely we, the Christian church of today, have lost our fear of God. Our God is an awesome God. Oh, I, I just wish I could reclaim that word for its proper usage. Um, yeah, our St. George folk have, have heard my tirade on this before, but I'm, I'm going to cut loose again because it, it really annoys me. What, what word can we use to describe the fear that we have for the almighty, holy God who reigns over heaven and earth? Yet we used to have that word awesome and we could use that. But, but that word's getting used for other stuff now, right? Um, we now use that word to describe how our day went. Oh, I had an awesome day. Or we use it to describe a hamburger. Oh, mm, what an awesome burger. A hamburger's not awesome. Awesome means that you are struck dumb in the awe and reverent fear as you fall on your knees and fall on your face in worship in a sense of holy terror before an almighty God. 
That's what awesome means. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never really felt that way about a hamburger. Oh, a hamburger! Oh. <clears throat> now, let me, let me be clear here. When we are in Christ, as disciples of Jesus, we shouldn't be scared of God. We're not scaredy cats of God. But I tell you what, when we truly know God, it is natural and it is right, even though we are in an intimate, loving relationship with God, it is right for us to fear him. C.S. Lewis captured this concept brilliantly when he wrote his Narnia series. Um, now, some of you will know this, some of you won't, that, but that, that the Narnia series, I had to study it when I was going to school. We studied the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and I just read it and I thought, oh, that's just a fairy tale. Okay. I, I didn't realise that, that it was an allegory of our saviour, that the whole fairy tale series is an allegory of God's relationship with us. And, and Aslan the lion represents Christ. Let me read you a scene when, when Lucy hears about Aslan. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he, he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. In... Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Philippians, by the way, is going to be our next series. Um, we're going to be, God willing, we're going to be finishing off this series this week. And God willing, we'll be back again next week to begin on our new series of, of the book of Philippians. Um, but in Ph Philippians chapter 2, Paul is telling that church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, in, back in chapter 7 of this very letter that we're studying right now, Paul reminded them of the obedience that they once had to Christ when they first came to faith in him and they received Christ with fear and trembling. Where's the fear and the trembling in the church today? Disobedience. And a rejection of Christ is what flourishes in a church when that church has lost its fear of Christ. And if I do not have a healthy, reverent fear of Christ, 
And that means that I don't really know Jesus at all. It means that I don't know him as Lord and that I don't know him as God. And so he says in verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Righto. Now, how difficult it's going to be for me to explain this is going to depend on a few things. You see, there are a few human teachings that prevent people from examining themselves properly to know whether they are in the faith. Some of them relate to a wrong understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the first place, and others of them are simply barriers that, that shutter our eyes from the truth so that we're unwilling to examine ourselves like we're being told to do here. Righto? And I'm going to put these under four headings. Firstly, a human religious perversion of the gospel. Secondly, a self-saving gospel. And then an emptying of the cost of discipleship and a human-given unfounded assurance. So, first one. A human religious perversion of the gospel. Some people believe that as long as they belong to the right church or as long as they believe to the right denomination, as long as they're following the right Christian leader, then and as long as they've been baptized into that denomination or into that church, then they are in that faith and the presence of Christ is with them and that can all be assured. And yet for them... For many of them, faith has nothing at all to do with discipleship. It's got nothing at all to do with following Jesus. It's got nothing to do with having a personal relationship with God and nothing to do with having a change of life or genuine repentance or having an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, for many people, that sort of faith involves less of a commitment than joining a sporting club. Because let's face it, you join a sporting club and, oh, you've still got to pay your dues every year. Or you join a sporting club and you still got to turn up for a working bee even if you don't play the sport. And I have heard so many people uh, give their testimony of how they have come out of that kind of empty religious experience. That kind of religion will not save us. And nor does it give us any kind of assurance that Christ is in us. And so Paul would say, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Secondly, there's a self-saving gospel that makes it hard. Probably the most commonly held community belief uh, is in having some kind of moral or moral way off or, or some kind of moral balancing act of righteousness versus naughtiness, right? And as long as, as long as I'm more righteous than what I am naughty, then that's all going to be good. And if we're close, well, oh, I didn't mean those naughty things, so I had all the good intentions and, and so I'm actually a good person. But, but this comes in varying degrees. 
Uh, some people work really, really hard and they strive really, really hard to, to be the best person that they could possibly be and, and they put a lot of work into it. Some people, far their righteousness far outweighs that of, of what is exemplified by some people who claim to be Christians. Um, but then there's others who not so much. It's more like, well, I'm not an evil person and what I do, I'm not hurting anybody in what I do. Therefore, I'll be good with God on Judgment Day, if there even is a God. And But if either of those two describe you, then you need to examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. Because what I've just described is not the faith in Christ. Because my scripture tells me that, that um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and none of us can be good enough. And so we're all totally dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ. Third one, the emptying of the cost of discipleship. Um, a, a current heresy in the Christian church, it's something which I call easy believism. It's something where people are told, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. doesn't matter what you do. Um, just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And it never at all addresses the cost of discipleship. Things like repentance of sin, things like the transformation of our character, or things like discipleship, following Jesus in, in all of his ways of righteousness and, and, and following Jesus into mission. It, instead, it just all becomes all about gimme, 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 gimme. And, and, and there's no personal suffering, there's no service, there's no dying to self in order to live for Jesus. And if that's the sort of gospel that you've received, if that's the sort of gospel that you're living by, examine yourself and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. And then the fourth example is the human giving unfounded assurance um, and what I'm thinking about here is the once saved, always saved doctrine. Now, I've talked about this before. Uh, you will not find once saved, always saved in the Bible. It's a human teaching. Uh, and yet, for many, it becomes an article of faith that, that they believe is a not negotiable. You must believe this. And the fact that I'm challenging this right now, some people would probably gladly tie me to a stake and burn me at that stake as a heretic. Uh, and yet it's not in the Bible. It's not what we're taught in the Bible. Some people believe that if at some point in your life you gave your life to Jesus, well, from that point on, you are saved and you can never be lost. And even if you don't want to be following Jesus anymore, even if you say, Jesus, I, I'm sick of you and I'm going to start following this other God now, well, they would say, no, you can't. Because once you are saved, you are always saved and you can't walk away from Jesus. Therefore, you're still right with God. And if that's what you've been taught... And if that's what you believe, and if that's what you are living by, then you're going to have a lot of trouble with this verse. When Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, well, the response to that would be, well, I don't need to examine myself because I'm told that I can't leave the faith. And when he says, test yourselves, well, 
That would just be faithlessness if I test myself. There is no test. You see, they, they believe that you can't fall away from the faith. And yet this is precisely what Paul is addressing here. At one time, this Corinthian church received Jesus. They received him with fear and trembling. But but now Paul is telling them to examine themselves and to see whether they are in the faith and to test themselves. He says, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Is Paul saying that that it's possible to wander away from the faith? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. In fact, that's what he's been talking about through this whole letter. And now that he's coming to the end of this letter, it's like he's saying, all right, I've laid it all down. I've spelled it all out. Now it's crunch time. It's time to test yourselves. Are you in the faith? And if your walk with God is growing cold, and if Jesus seems to be distant, maybe it's time for you to examine yourself and to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. But what is the test? Truth and the presence of God. Throughout this whole letter, Paul has been setting out and and making it clear the distinction between truth and falsehood. And in the church today, where do we find truth? How can we know? It's a couple of thousand years since this was written. Well, we find that the gospel truth, as preached by the apostles, recorded in the scriptures and that's why we put such a large amount of our time when we gather together for worship into reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures that's why this is why even though we're in this in this time of covid when we can't meet together that's why we are continuing to record these messages because knowing the scriptures is really important and how are you going to know if i am teaching you the truth well you need to open up your Bibles and study them as well. Is, is what I'm telling you lining up with what the Scriptures say? And the second test is the presence of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, but only if you're in the faith? Now, I wonder if Paul would ask us that same question today. Do we realise this about ourselves? That Jesus Christ is in us? Wow. Uh, imagine, imagine the tidy up that would that have to happen at home if this happened, right? If, if Jesus rings me one day and I'm on the phone, hello, oh, it's Jesus here. Michael, I'm going to pop around for a visit. I'll be there in about 10 minutes. Oh, okay, Jesus. See you then. Bye. Robin, Robin, quick, Jesus is coming. Oh, what are we going to do? Quickly, quickly, oh, grab the Bible because oh, I always read the Bible off the iPad now and, and oh, the, 
blow the dust off that. I'll put it. I'll put it on the coffee table so it's in private position. <gasps> Better put away those trashy magazines. We'll put them away, okay? And and then Robin's going to take over. And, and Michael, quick, get into the kitchen. We got to do the washing and wiping up. You know, cl- cleanliness is next to godliness. You know. And oh, for goodness sake, Michael, those socks of yours, those dirty socks, are on the bench again. I've told you something. Get rid of them, quick. Jesus is coming. And then I'm going to go. Oh. Look at all this stuff that we've got. Ah, oh, what Jesus is going to think we're materialistic. Maybe we'll just cover him up with a few blankets and things. He doesn't need to see the TV or whatever. Uh, is that what it would be like if Jesus came to visit you at your place? Do we realise, do we truly realise that Jesus isn't just going to come to visit our homes for 10 minutes one day at the drop of a hat? Jesus Christ is in us. He is with us 24-7. Wow. How we live matters. It really matters. I just need a drink after that bit of a... Sorry. How we live matters. Why does it matter? Because Christ is in us. If we are in the faith, Jesus Christ is in us. What a privilege. What a delight. What an honour. You know, this is life-changing stuff, folks. What's the evidence of the presence of God in our lives? The fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to see a bit of a picture of the fruit of the Spirit in a church as Paul finishes off this letter. Righto? So Paul, he doesn't want to be the big meanie when he comes. He doesn't want to come waving a big stick. His prayer is for their restoration. His prayer is that they would be restored to the Christian faith and that they would recognize his heart and that they would be in proper fellowship with him again. You know, there, there is something magnificent about when a people of faith are together and unite in Christ. Firstly, that church will be a church of truth. Verse 8 says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. There is no room for falsehood in a church whose faith is truly in Jesus Christ. Such a church will not tolerate lies. It will not tolerate false teaching. It'll be a church that just loves and delights in the pure truth of the gospel and it'll be completely content with that. It won't be going looking for anything else to try and fill the gaps or to make us feel better because we're already content with the truth. Secondly, It'll be a church who reconcile and unite in Christ. Paul's desire here is for them to be reconciled so that they can truly be together again with each other and that they can truly be together again with him himself. And that they would recognize that the, the, the truth and the love in which Paul has been sharing all of this really hard stuff with them. Thirdly, A church who are in the faith is a church who rejoice in the restoration of those who have sinned. Now, for anyone who's 
ever experienced extreme disharmony in a church, well, well, first of all, I want to say to you, I'm sorry that you've had to experience that. But I'll also say that you can probably identify with this. When, when that trouble finally comes to a head, often the troublemakers will leave. It's very tempting to have the attitude, well, well good riddance, and um, don't, don't, don't ever bother coming back again. You see, there's been so much hurt, there's been so much pain, there's been so much disharmony and grieving within that church. It, it, it's just like a sigh of relief. Oh, thank goodness. But you know what? That, that attitude, and I know how hard it is to lose that attitude, it's not the way of Christ. Christ is the one who reconciles. Christ is the one who searches for the lost and the broken, and he's the one who rejoices at their return. And when we are truly a people of faith, we rejoice, not, not in the rejection of those that we disagree with, but we rejoice in their restoration. Fourthly, a church who are in the faith will be a church of shared fellowship. It'll be a church that delights in fellowship. It, if there's one thing now that which is hurting me more than anything else with this whole COVID-19 and the social distancing thing, it's the fact that we cannot meet together and, and that our fellowship has, has major limitations on it at the moment. Do you know how to tell a church who really love Jesus and who are really true in the faith what you do is you see how much they really love one another. It's a church that comforts one another. It's a church that agrees with one another. It's a church who live at peace with one another and who are affectionate with one another. How about this? Verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. By the way, you know the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss? About three seconds. Uh, that one never gets old. My kids love it that I just keep telling that joke. Like, oh, damn. But in, in all seriousness, um, that is a direction that we can't keep at the moment. Um, social distancing makes it really hard to greet one another with a holy kiss. But, but what is this holy kiss about? It's not really in part of our culture. You know, some cultures are kissy culture. Oh, hello! Mwah, mwah. It's, that's not in our culture for most of us in Australia, is it? What it is, is it's an image of having a holy affection for one another, loving one another, being in contact with one another, not being afraid of one another. Righto. Guess what, folks? We've come to the end of 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's been a long journey for some of us. Not a long journey for you, Bonjean, because you've only joined us in the last few weeks. Um, you've got lots of catching up to do. But some of it's been pretty tough going. 
But the picture of the church that Paul ends on here, you know what? It's the picture of the church that I pray for. It's the picture of the church that I pray that we are. And it's the picture of the church that I pray that we will increasingly become. It's a church of truth. It's a church that reconcile and are united in Christ. It's a church who rejoice in the restoration of the lost. And it's a church of affectionate, holy fellowship. That's the church that I want to be part of. Is that the church you are a part of? In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we be just such a church. And now I'm going to finish with the blessing that Paul finished with. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.